Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. I hope that you all got a chance to listen to the video about all the changes coming to Back to Ashes. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout out to the Patreon members. Samantha, Victoria Dyer, Tina Mead, Nancy Wallace, Mana Ash, Cindy Cleveland, and House of Jen. The rest will be right here on the screen. Thank you all so much for becoming a part of the new membership. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes, I've now added more tiers to the membership levels. And as well, if you would like to support a content creator such as myself, you can buy me a coffee. All of that can be found in the description below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in to get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Backwoods Creepy Stories. Right after this introduction and ad will play, I'll read the first story and ad will play, and after that, there will be no more ads within this video. I'm from South Jersey and spend a lot of time in the Pine Barrens camping, hiking, off-roading in my Jeep. I started spending more time at Brandon D. Brine State Forest over the last few years because of the off-road trails. There's a lake called Packing Pond along one of the main roads in the park, and it's a great place to go and park to look up at the stars. Something of note is that this state forest is very close, approximately 15 miles, from Joint Base McGuire and Fort Dix. To get right to it, I've seen strange, unexplainable lights in the trees in different areas of the forest. The first few times were while we parked at Packing Pond and stargazing. I noticed small lights that would sometimes flicker or stay stationary just below the tree line. Easily mistakable for stars, I didn't think much of it until I realized that during the daytime, the tree line was high enough that there's no way I could have been seeing stars through the thick foliage and tree line. I brought my wife with me the next time, specifically to try to show her these strange lights, and sure enough, they were there. Not in the same spots. They seemingly move. Two years later, and I just went camping on Thanksgiving Eve with my old friend, and the park was pretty much empty because it was 30 degrees. All night long I could see the lights in the trees below the tree line. They perplex me. I have no clue what they are. I can't find anything online about this, so I think I need to do my own investigation. I don't know what to think of them, except possibly some sort of light being or fairies. That sounds ridiculous to say, but they seem paranormal in nature. Anyone have any ideas what these are? Anyone have a similar experience in the Pine Barrens or anywhere else? This happened a few months ago and has been bugging me. I was out hiking and rappelling with a friend in the hills near Tombstone. I want to mention that I have spent quite a bit of time solo hiking and camping. I am used to hearing noises and brushing it off. Anyways, it's late afternoon and I'm the first one to rappel down. 
I got to the bottom, and while my partner was getting ready to follow me, we heard this noise that I would describe most like a growl or snarl. It sounded like it was coming from the ridge above both of us. If facing the cliff, it sounded like it was coming from the right side. We both looked around but didn't see anything. I encouraged him to come down and even half joked that it was probably just a bear or mountain lion. At that point, I wasn't even feeling that nervous. I figured that once the two of us were together again, we would be pretty intimidating to any animal. While he repelled down, I heard a loud crash to what seemed to be parallel to me on the left. By this point, I'm starting to get pretty scared because it was getting closer and also had somehow gone from right to left on an exposed cliff face without either of us seeing it. He successfully repelled down and we both agreed we needed to get the fuck out of there and we still had a steep downhill climb to the car. We packed up the gear as fast as possible. As we got our packs back on, we heard what to me sounded like a howler monkey. The noise was close and we still could not see what was making it. Of course, it was from the direction that we needed to go. We hauled ass down the mountain and got in the car. I know that it can be easy to let the mind play tricks, but we had the exact same account of what happened. Now this is the part I hesitate to put into writing, because I know it sounds even more insane, but we both heard whispering and giggling as if it was right next to us. I keep trying to explain to myself that our minds are just playing a trick. The first noise I would chalk up to a bear or mountain lion. Animals are stealthy and could run in front of us without us noticing, right? Something else could have fell from the right side. What made the monkey noises, though? Why do we both feel like we heard whispering? Anyone else have creepy experiences in Arizona? I want to believe someone was pranking us, but there weren't any other cars in the parking area. My friend believes that we experienced something supernatural. I honestly have no idea what to think. For context, yes, I believe in the paranormal. I've had encounters and experiences, as has my mom and grandmother. This was a little different and not scary, just strange. I was a manager of a very well-known drugstore and took a back road to the store back and forth every day for two years. It was semi-rural, as it had once been acres of farmland that was now being sold off to developers. Just for some insight into the area, my ex-in-laws lived in this area for 30 years on 200 acres and had a cattle farm. They still lived nearby, just on a smaller farm, so this was a very frequented area to drive for my family, and my ex knew the area very well. This was a heavily mined area where a lot of strange things happened. There was also a huge landfill in the area. I was coming home one day, July-ish, not too tired, and was looking across the cornfields 
and as I came around a bend, noticed a house on the edge of the fields I had never noticed before. It was a very unassuming red house, small with a peak roof and a porch in front. My first thought was not, wow, I've never seen that house before, but how in the heck do the people get into it? There are no driveways leading to it. Weird, this is 2015 and there has to be a driveway. As I continued and rounded another bend, I couldn't see the house anymore, but was looking at a few houses nearby to see if their driveways went back to this house and couldn't see any way into it. By then, there is a very well-traveled intersection and a huge church, so I just sort of kept alert and driving. Later in the evening, I'm telling my ex about this house and that it felt very weird. And all the time I had driven that road, and I never noticed it. I went to work the next day. Coming home, the only way I would have seen it, it wasn't there. I don't know what I saw that day, but I can still see the house very clearly in my head. About six years ago, I was in fantastic shape and used to take my then-toddler on long day hikes in our local woods or state parks around Oregon. One Saturday, we decided to do a 10-mile loop around a local reservoir. We packed a lunch so we could stop midpoint. I also always packed my kiddo a second set of clothes due to their proclivity for finding gross things. As was usual, said toddler had a lot of energy at the beginning of the hike and would run 20 yards or so in front of me, stop to look at plants, help me identify things near the trail, and of course find a good stick. After about three miles, the four-year-old wanted to be carried for a bit. Hmm, no biggie. Hoisted the tod up on my shoulders and off we went. We reached the half-mile point. The day was a beautiful April day in Oregon. We had encountered a small drizzle early on, but that just delighted the small one. Temperatures were such that a light flannel shirt was perfect, and I rolled up my sleeves after walking two miles with an extra 40 pounds on my shoulders. We ate lunch and continued on our way. About half a mile after eating, my four-year-old's demeanor began to change. They became quiet and didn't want to run down the path or engage in looking at plants. I thought maybe they were just tired and our lunch break hadn't been long enough. However, we continued on. Soon, I noticed that the ever-present sounds in the woods had stopped. It was eerily quiet, and all I could hear was the sounds of our feet hitting the ground. The hair on the back of my neck started to prickle. I only had my hunting axe with me, so I found a hefty stick for myself. My four-year-old asked if we could turn around. This kid doesn't like to turn around, especially on loop hikes. I didn't hesitate and said yes. I managed to fit them against my back and use my backpack to keep them in place, kind of like a baby carrier. 
My head was on a swivel as I quickly walked back the way we came. After about a quarter mile, the feeling of unease and being watched receded. The normal noises of birds, insects, frogs, etc. all resumed. A couple days later, I saw on a local Facebook post that a logging crew who was on the opposite side of the hill we had hiked had spotted a mama mountain lion and her cub. No idea if that's what had me and my kiddos spooked, but it was definitely the most scared I'd ever felt on a hike. We went back a couple months after that and brought my husband with us. We did the whole loop and never encountered that feeling again. So, I live in Austin, Texas. We have a metropolitan park located in North Austin that is almost 300 acres. I visit this park often and have never had a weird experience until now. This park has a ton of trails for mountain biking and hiking. There is also a creek that runs through the park. Two days ago, I took my four kids and myself hiking on the trail. We arrived at the trailhead around 4 p.m., and started our hike. There's three bridges over water we passed during our hike. Each bridge was at least a half a mile apart. Our destination required us to pass all three bridges before we started to make our way back. We made it to our destination and started walking back with no issues, only the occasional mountain biker passing by. On the way back, as we walked over the second bridge, my kids and I, all under the age of 10, heard someone very clearly with a female voice under the bridge say, Hi, my dear. Come over here. She said it twice. The first time we heard it, we all stopped in our tracks and looked at each other like, Did you hear that? My nine-year-old daughter even asked, Mom, did you hear that? What was that? And my three-year-old looked at me very perplexed. There was no one in sight. I even looked under the bridge and couldn't see anyone, but could hear some rustling. Then, a few seconds later, we heard it again in the same exact tone and voice. Hi, my dear. Come over here. It was almost robotic. This was about an hour or so into our hike, so around 5 to 5.15 p.m. At that point, we all started swiftly walking towards the trailhead. No one said a word the whole time. I remained calm as I always carry my side piece, so I had a form of self-defense to rely on. But still, it definitely spooked me and the kids. There's a playground not far from the trailhead, and when I asked my kids if they wanted to play on the playground, they all simultaneously and without missing a beat said, Uh-uh, no. They wanted to go straight home. Considering this is Austin, it definitely could have been vagrant camping out at the park. This isn't unusual. Regardless, if this was a vagrant high on drugs or a supernatural being, it was still very creepy. We were all very spooked.
I recently drove home from school to work for the summer before going back, and I haven't been up to the only national forest, which is in Wisconsin, about five hours from my house. I took a friend along, and we left this Saturday at around 10 a.m., and got there at around 3.30 p.m. because the forest roads we took were pretty bad. The mosquitoes this time of year are absolutely f- terrible, and the headwaters wilderness is mostly swamp and marsh. So we hiked around for about five miles before finding a camp spot down an abandoned but marked forest road that led to private property about four miles in. The private property had no access but I saw that it was not a part of the federal land on my GPS app. This road was extremely overgrown, with large ostrich ferns, measuring three to four feet tall, on the entire path, down limbs every half a mile or so, and plenty of dead wood to support a fire. We had set our packs about a mile back, and we were just exploring down it further in hopes to find something cooler than the essentially solo beach forest that we had found. When it started to get dark, we decided to turn around, and when circumnavigating a down tree, we found a full three-foot-tall shelter that had obviously taken a decent amount of time to build. It looked like it had a full interior of sticks as well. I'm slightly superstitious, so I recognized the potential for it to be a nesse, or something similar. So we found some good wood to leave as offerings, and went on our way. Later that night, our fire reignited, after we had used a full gallon to douse it and with no wind. I heard footsteps around our tents, after my friend had used the restroom and gone back inside his tent. I heard what sounded like a log smacking the base of a tree in a one, two, three pattern every five minutes or so each hour. And I swear I heard a light-sounding voice or a giggle. Needless to say, I got out of there in the morning. Nothing nefarious really happened, though, so I'm not sure if this was... Just imagination or some Nesse being mischievous with us because we didn't leave them a good enough offering. I don't know. What do you all think? I wasn't sure who to tell this to, but I needed the validation that I'm not insane. I've never really had paranormal experiences, but I cannot explain this. I'm in college, and me and some other seven people from my school went on a backpacking trip, and we had two experienced leaders. We drove to Zaleski State Park, which is in the Appalachian region of Ohio. It was early April this year, and it was cold, and everything was still dead from winter. After hiking miles into the forest, we set up camp at the backpacking campsite, and there were a couple of other groups of people as well. A few of them were friendly older couples, and then two college-age girls. Everyone was pretty spread out from each other. We set up camp further away from everyone else. I have always been able to sense energies of places, and the energy in this area 
wasn't great. It was almost spooky. Each of us had individual, one-person tents, and we formed kind of a cluster in the site, with my tent being in the back, so no one was behind me. Our cluster was also right next to the forest, because this backpacking site was like a big cleared-off square in the middle of the trees. Fast forward a bit, I'm dead asleep at around 2 a.m., and I wake up to leaves crunching right behind my tent. I hear footsteps walking in circles around my tent. They had a sort of heaviness to them that couldn't be a deer or a dog. Also, it sounded like just two legs. I cannot make this up. This creature was circling my tent for long periods of time, slowly creeping up to the sides of my tent and then just stopping for periods of time. And then would move on to walking around the rest of our tent cluster. I could hear a human-like breathing from the mouth when it was close to my tent, like a light sort of heaving. I was shaking, too scared to unzip my tent and investigate. I kid you not, this occurred for hours, and it seemed I was the only one awake. Out of nowhere, I see an illuminated light shape from my tent, although I couldn't tell what it was from inside my tent because it was all zipped up. It was like a warm glow and it didn't move, like a flashlight would. I was paralyzed in fear. I simply couldn't believe it was an animal. At some point, I fell asleep due to sheer exhaustion, but I could hear the heavy footsteps circling until I did. In the morning, I questioned my fellow campers about it, and my leader admitted she heard the footsteps and noises as well, admitting it was bizarre and she would have investigated had she not been so groggy. One of the boys in the group said he also noticed the light that came on, but thought it was someone else. Not a single person in this group went up to go to the bathroom or turned on a light that night. I've heard things about the Appalachian regions being creepy and bizarre, and now I believe it. Some people on Reddit have leaned towards Bigfoot, because apparently he is associated with light orbs. Never been a Bigfoot believer, but I'm telling you, this doesn't feel like any animal, like a bear. Let me start off by saying that this is a true story that happened to me when I was about 13. I'm 27 now. Whether you believe it or not is up to you. My dad used to be a part of a small hunting club in Alabama, just a handful of guys he grew up with. Once a year, we would drive to the small town of Elba to camp for a few days and go hunting. There were a few different areas of land around the town that the club owned and club members could go hunting there. One of these pieces of land was nicknamed the cemetery because, well, it had an old cemetery on it. Nothing really creepy about the cemetery. It was in the woods and the graves were of a slave owner and the graves of his slaves. Now, in this area of land nicknamed the cemetery... 
there are five or six green fields. Basically, a cleared-out area where there are no trees, just grass and a buck hut to hunt in. A buck hut is a treehouse that you sit in to wait for deer to walk out onto the green field. This particular evening, we were going to hunt on Greenfield 1, the plot directly behind the old cemetery. The evening started off normal enough. My dad parked the truck and we walked down the trail to the buck hunt. We climbed up and started to wade and watch the woods. A little bit of time passes and my dad tells me that he's going to go for a short walk to see if he maybe sees a deer on the trail. Keep in mind, I'm about 13 years old. Not a big deal, I've hunted by myself before, and I'm not afraid of being alone in the woods. Besides, it was still pretty light out. So I said okay, and he climbed down. It was just me, my 32 caliber Marlin rifle, the grass field in front of me, and the dense woods around me. This is where things start to get strange. I sat there for a eternity or what felt like an eternity and it was now almost twilight my concern for my dad was growing because he was still not back yet i was worried that maybe something happened to him or maybe he had gotten lost however he's an experienced hunter and if he was lost he would yell or fire off a shot but the woods had been dead silent I figured maybe he found a good spot that he wanted to hunt at the twilight dusk hour of the day, because that's prime time for hunting. So I focused my attention on the grass field in front of me. Just watching, listening, and waiting for a deer to walk out on the field as the light of the day began to fade. Just then, across the field, I saw and heard some brush moving and breaking. The thought did cross my mind that it could be my dad, but I highly doubted it. No way could it be him. That would be incredibly dangerous and stupid. I raised my rifle, pulled back the hammer, aimed it at the moving brush, and patiently waited for what I hoped was a deer to walk out. Then, a girl floated out of the woods and onto the grassy field. She was transparent white, with a long flowing dress and long white hair. She floated from one side of the field to the other, and disappeared back into the woods. I watched her for a solid minute or two. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was petrified. Now I wanted my dad back. A short time passed and it's now pitch black and I'm still alone. My concern for my dad was turning into panic, but I was too afraid to yell or go look for him in the pitch black woods where I just saw a f ghost. I sat there for hours, terrified and alone in the darkness. Thankfully, he finally returned. He acted as if he hadn't been gone long at all. I asked him where the f he went and he said he just went for a short walk up the trail turned around and came back. The timeline made no sense. He was gone for hours. It was unlike him to leave me alone for that long. He was adamant that he had only been gone for 15 to 30 minutes. We walked down the trail back to his truck. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. 
the whole experience still confuses me to this day. Was the ghost I saw an old slave or slave owner buried in the woods behind me? Something else entirely? Did my dad go through some time warp where time sped up? I don't know. I never went hunting there ever again and don't plan on ever going back. Okay, first you must know that 30 years ago, from age 17 to 22, I did a lot of crystal meth. I know what you're thinking, but it wasn't like that. I was extremely high-functioning. I graduated from college, magna cum laude, with a double major in Russian and religion, and held down a complicated job. I was the youngest person at my university, ever inducted into Phi Beta Kappa, which people tell me is really something. I was asked to represent my university by speaking at academic conferences. I didn't do meth to cope with how busy I was. I did all of the above because I had so much extra time thanks to the meth and decided to fill it by learning the Russian language, all of it, in one night. I lived a very schizophrenic existence, no one would have believed by looking at me that I was a pretty hardcore meth user and mainly hung out with strippers and bikers who were pretty much older than I. Back in Gainesville, I had a group of associates, drug addicts often don't have friends, whose favorite thing to do was get really high and go out to Payne's Prairie, or PP for short, at midnight. PP is a unique natural feature in north-central Florida. It's a vast grassland ringed by dense, spooky live oak hammocks and marshy areas, and also a few residential houses that run some cattle. It's very big, very wild, and mostly untrailed. We'd go out there at midnight and take off all of our clothes, including our shoes, We'd split up and spend the rest of the night walking alone and totally naked in the darkness. We were definitely very high, but we weren't dangerous. We were weirdos and artists, members of punk bands, and also, sometimes, River Phoenix. This was in the late 80s and early 90s, so there were no cell phones, and we never, ever brought flashlights. Your eyes would adjust to the moonlight very quickly, and the few trails out there were made of fine white sand, which gleamed even when the moon was new. Once you got off the trail, though, you were on your own, and many dangerous things bit us while we were out there. One night, I was halfway down the main trail, away from the parking area, when I heard voices. Lots and lots of voices. It was 2 a.m. and I was alone and naked. The moon was totally full, and the trail I was on seemed to radiate its own silver light. The voices belonged to young men and women, and they were laughing and shouting and saying, Dude, and, Ew, Heather, that's so gross. They sounded like drunk frat boys and sorority girls from the university. 
I wasn't afraid of them, but I didn't want to waste time answering the questions they'd undoubtedly have if they saw me. In the moonlight, it was easy to spot a saw palmetto about 25 feet off the trail. I ran over to it and squatted behind it, wrapping my hair around my arms and chest. The group of about ten kids neared. They were still hooting and bickering. Soon they'd pass by. They were even with me and still making loud sounds. If I were a cryptid, I could attack and eat two of them before they realized anything was wrong. They passed by and their voices grew fainter. Finally, it fell silent. I counted slowly to ninety, not rushing through any Mississippis, and stood up. The ten frat and sorority kids were standing directly across from me on the trail, staring at me, speechless, with identical looks of terror on their conventionally attractive faces. I was five foot eight, weighed about 115 pounds, and was totally naked. My pale skin, given to me by my Scottish grandmother, glowed like a corpse's in the moonlight. My waist-length auburn hair was wavy and unruly on a good day, but on this night, thanks to the humidity and the meth, it was a sentient thing all its own, standing out in a mass around my face and shoulders, writhing and beckoning. I decided to go with what my observers were probably thinking, which was ghost or witch or demon. It was close enough. I stood perfectly still and stared back at them, my face expressionless. They let out a collective <gasps> of horror and hightailed it back towards the parking area. I turned my back on the palmetto and lit off through the woods, avoiding the trails for the rest of the night. When the sky began to pinken, the six of us met by the place where we stashed our clothes. As we all were dressing... The talk was mainly about the screaming. My associates could hear it clear across the prairie, over by the swamp. Weird night, they said. Hope it's nothing to worry about. This happened when I was 15, near Algonquin Park. My father and I were driving up to our cottage in the middle of winter. I always was so amazed at the beauty of Algonquin Park and Muskoka, and had grown up enjoying the beauty of it every summer. Our cottage was on a large lake, about a 30-minute drive from the nearest town. There were probably thousands of cottages on the lake. During the summer, the lake and the town's population tripled. It was cottage country so people would spend all summer enjoying the lake and warm nights around campfires with family and friends. I spent every summer there growing up, and it still brings fond memories of sunshine and laughter and the sound of motorboats on the lake, but the winters were different. The people that didn't live there all year would venture back home to the city life, leaving the area mostly deserted, with cottages boarded up for the winter. There were a few people that still frequently come up every couple of months for a few days or so, but for the most part, the lake was silent during the winters, and the town was just filled with locals. The beautiful pine trees were always covered with snow, 
making the forest quiet. Our cottage was on a dead-end road. There were about 20 other cottages on that road, with ours being somewhat in the middle. The cottages were quite spaced out. However, with our closest neighbors being too far away to see through the trees. My dad had needed to head up to the cottage to do some painting that my mom had been bugging him to do. It was at the end of February, and it was a long weekend, so I tagged along so he wouldn't be alone and we could spend some quality time together. It was about a five-hour drive from our house, but turned out to be an eight-hour drive due to the heavy snow. It had gotten dark out quite early, and it was around midnight as we drove through Algonquin Park. It was deadly quiet and pitch black except for the headlights of the car. We finally passed through the park, with only about 30 minutes left to get to the cottage. It had stopped snowing, and we were both eager to get there. As we turned onto the familiar road, I remember my dad cursing. It hadn't been plowed yet. This wasn't surprising, however. It probably wouldn't be until later the next day that we would even see a snowplow. As we drove down the road, I noticed there was a fresh set of tire tracks. The Smiths must be up for the weekend, my dad had said. All of a sudden, as we drove around the bend, following the tire tracks, the headlights of the car shone on a white van that was parked on the side of the road. It was almost hidden by the vast trees that were covered with snow. What the... my dad mumbled. As we drove past the white van, I remember looking back through the back window and very clearly seeing two figures in the front seat, illuminated by our retreating taillights. I told my dad this and he shrugged. Maybe they're lost. I nodded but couldn't help to think about how it was a dead-end road and why they would feel the need to park there. As we pulled into our driveway... We started bringing our stuff in. I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. I couldn't stop thinking about that van and why it was there, with two people just sitting in the dark in the middle of the night. It spooked me so much that I begged my dad to let me sleep upstairs with him instead of sleeping downstairs in the room my sister and I usually shared. It had big windows with no blinds that looked out into the blackness of the forest and my 15-year-old self was already scared of the dark, even without seeing the white van. It wasn't a big deal when my sister was there, but not tonight. As my dad got ready for bed, I sat in the living room reading a book. My dad had turned all the lights off, and I was just using a small lamp next to the couch to try and get through one last chapter before bed. It was so quiet, I could almost hear my ears ringing. I also started to get the feeling that I was being watched. The living room had large windows, also with no curtains, that overlooked the lake, and it was black except for a light or two from cottages across the lake. I shut off the lamp and got up. Now that the cottage was dark, the moon was shining brightly, illuminating the snow. It was beautiful, and I walked towards the window to get a better look. Movement caught my eye, and I remember my heart dropping as I saw two figures down by the back porch, below the window, barely hidden from the surrounding trees. I dropped to the floor and crawled towards the bedroom where my dad was sleeping, 
my heart in my throat. I wasn't sure if they'd seen me or not. I woke my dad up, and by the time he got to the window, the two figures were gone. Where I had seen the two figures, two sets of footprints in the snow led back around to the front of the cottage and back down the driveway. I begged my dad not to go outside. He double-checked the locks and turned on the porch lights, hopefully to scare anyone off. My dad wasn't as freaked out as I was, but still set the alarm before he headed back to bed. I remember being very freaked out, and I lay there all night next to my dad, terrified I'd look out the window and see someone staring back at me. The next morning, my dad went outside and confirmed that there were two sets of footprints leading from the road to right and behind our cottage, and then back around to the front of the cottage and back up to the road. There were tire marks that showed the vehicle had turned around and then gone back up to the main road. My dad guessed that they were probably looking to break in and steal stuff, as it was the middle of winter, and not too many people were up at the lake. But they knew we were there. They would have seen our tire tracks leading to our cottage, and my dad's car parked out front. They also may have seen the lamp I had turned on to read, and or seeing it go off. My dad didn't have an answer to that, and after much back and forth, he called the non-emergency line and reported it. Apparently, there had been some break-ins in the area, and some stuff had been stolen from some cottages that were boarded up for the winter. But again, and I still wonder to this day, why would they be interested in stealing from a house that clearly has people inside of it? In February last year, me and a bunch of friends went camping at Moss Park, a county park in the southeast of Orlando. This county park is on a forested island with two large lakes to the east and west and two extensive nature preserves to the north and south. We were just hanging around the campfire, drinking beers and smoking pot. Around 11 p.m., me and three of the friends decided to go for a walk into the nature preserve to the south. Our destination was a dock on a pond and cove of the large lake to the west. I normally am not the type to go walking around the woods in the dark. I do a lot of hiking, but always during the daytime hours. I guess being slightly inebriated and with friends made me braver than usual. So we went trekking off into the woods in the dark with nothing but a flashlight to protect us. At first, the trail was taking us through a large swamp, and nothing felt out of the ordinary. Next, the trail entered a thick pine forest. Here, things began to feel a bit different, and in retrospect, it was very quiet, and I wasn't concerned at the time. We got to the dock and started shining the flashlight around, hoping to see some alligators. There were no alligators, no bugs, and no sign of life in general. I thought it was a bit odd, and again, I wasn't too concerned. Then, all of a sudden, something changed. Within a few seconds, all four of us said something along the lines of, Do you feel that? Something, all of a sudden, felt very wrong. Then, one of my friends said, Listen to how quiet it is. 
We all shut up and listened. It was insanely quiet. Not a single frog, insect, or bird. Even the wind had stopped. It was the quietest thing I had ever heard in my life. It was like we were inside a vacuum. Remembering this lack of sound gives me chills to this day. Next, we all remarked how cold it was getting. I started getting goosebumps. It felt like the barometric pressure had just plummeted. At this point, we all agreed that we needed to get the f*** out of there. There was a strong feeling of impending danger. Like something wanted us to leave, ASAP, and we would be in big trouble if we didn't. I was able to feel that all of this energy was coming from across the pond towards us. I think all of my friends could feel this as well. Because we were all focused on the pond, nobody was paying any attention to the dark woods behind us. It felt like a charge of energy was running through my body, and I could feel exactly the direction that this energy was coming from. We all agreed that we had to leave and started walking back at a fast pace. The bad feelings were still present while we were walking back through the pine forest. One of my friends actually started crying. I was not too worried, though. I felt like we would be okay as long as we kept walking. Once the trail exited the pine forest and entered the swamp, all the bad feelings were immediately lifted. It was like we had crossed some sort of threshold, and everything felt fine again. I think we may have been run off by a Sasquatch because I've seen them myself on a few occasions, and I've heard that they can put these bad feelings into people, but we didn't see anything, so I can't say for sure what it was. About 15 minutes after getting back to the campfire where the rest of our friends were, we heard what sounded like someone or something whacking a tree with a big stick, one time just across the campground. This may have been related to what happened earlier, the campground host immediately got up and started walking around with a light, as if they were equally surprised by this sound, or possibly this kind of thing had happened before. I had to leave the next morning to go to work, but some of my friends stuck around and went back to the dock during the daylight hours. They reported that nothing was out of the ordinary this time. I still go hiking a lot, but I am not planning on doing any more hiking in the dark. It felt like we were in legitimate danger. Like whatever it was could have made us disappear if we didn't leave as soon as possible. This next story is entitled The Mysterious Ghost Town of Portlock, Alaska. The community of Portlock began in Port Chatham Bay in Kenai Peninsula as a canary in the early 1900s. Its inhabitants were mainly Russian folk, specifically from the Aleutian Islands, which form a curving archipelago that connects Alaska and Russia while delineating the Bering Sea from Pacific Ocean. In 1921, the community established itself enough to warrant a U.S. post office opening in town. The mysteries of Portlock began only a few short decades after its founding, with the disappearance of some town folk in the 1940s. Sheep hunters had vanished from the hills surrounding the town, and reportedly, 
Their bodies would later be found in the lagoon and waterways, mutilated to a degree of brutality that no one thought a wild animal capable or even desirous of doing. Mysterious prints from some unfamiliar and massive beast measuring 18 inches long were found by hunters tracking moose in the hills surrounding town. Apparently, when the hunters tracked this mysterious animal, they found no moose, but a massively bloody scene. Melania Kell told the story, according to her memory, to the Homer Tribune. When she was only a baby, her family suddenly fled from their seaside home in Port Chatham, a community adjacent to Portlock, leaving their livelihood and all else behind. Her family was not alone. All of the residents of Portlock left their lives behind in terrible fear. According to her, a Nantinak had been stalking the townsfolk, a local Sasquatch-like creature that is said to haunt the Kenai Peninsula. She believed her own godfather had been killed by the creature in 1931, where he was struck in the head in a manner that seemed beyond the strength of any human being. Despite being sighted in other regions of the Kenai Peninsula, the beast seemed to favor Portlock, most of all as whispers of a spirit preying on its people traveled throughout the settlements. Were one to write out all of those stories that would sound very familiar to those of us with even the slightest interest in cryptids, hunters mysteriously vanishing, glimpses of a hairy beast stalking in the shadows of trees, mysterious sounds that seemed to belong to an unknown beast. But despite the similarity, the stories of the Natinak have been told far longer than those of Bigfoot. Whatever it was that prowled the wilds around Portlock, it clearly struck a deep and abiding terror in its people. By the early 1950s, Portlock was all but entirely abandoned, marked by the closing of the post office in town. According to Brian Weed, co-founder of a group called Juno's Hidden History, before Portlock began its life as a cannery, it has been host to a small village many years before. It seems those inhabitants also abandoned their fishing camps, reporting that they were being bothered by some beast or spirit. We told KINY Radio that later, when the canary was abandoned, those running it begged the inhabitants to stay, even employing armed guards to assuage their nerves. But no amount of begging or precautions seemed to motivate the townspeople to stay. When it's put into perspective just how many people died during this time, this is no surprise. It's said that as many as three dozen people went missing from the small village in only 20 years' time. Strangely, Portlock only appeared on the U.S. Census twice, once in 1940 and again in 1980, curiously reporting exactly 31 residents each time. This seems like it could be a kind of clerical error, but for some, it adds to the dark mystique of the town's story. Could there be people living there still? Was the area repopulated again in the 80s only to be abandoned once more? According to locals today, the area is markedly haunted and not merely by Nantinic lore. Even before Melania's time, there were stories told of other spirits that haunted the Kenai Peninsula such as that of a pale-faced woman shrouded and draped in a long black cloth that dragged in the wet earth 
behind her. She was said to emerge from the seaside cliffs, screaming and wailing before vanishing back into them. Could this creature that prowled the port town and surrounding wilderness for hundreds of years be a massive lineage of bear? It's hard to imagine that people so intimate with the vast wilderness and all the explicable terrors it holds would be so grasped by such a delirious fear that they leave their whole world behind. Perhaps a few too many unthinkable tragedies happened in too short of a time, although dozens of murders or accidents is still hard to explain. Maybe this really was an encounter with the self-same creature we call Bigfoot. If the census is correct, did people try to live in the area again only to be scared off by the same beast? Portlock is now, by all accounts, a ghost town, home only to crumbling lumber, rusting canary equipment, and other traces of a once vibrant community. To this day, it has not been settled again, despite its bounty of resources and breathtaking beauty. The sway held by the local lore may keep that land untouched for many years yet. This happened to me in the summer of 2009. I was at a six-week air cadet band camp surrounded by a densely thick pine forest, and basically it was the most f***ed up six weeks of my life. So, second night there, we're laying in bed in our barracks. There's eight of us to a room, and we're awake at just about midnight talking about girls and texting. One guy, let's call him Alex, is the only one sleeping and is lying on the bottom bunk next to the door. Suddenly, he moans, and he says, Guys, what am I drinking? We all burst out laughing, but when he flipped on the light switch... He was covered in blood. This isn't the weird part. It was just a nosebleed. So we call the sergeant in to change his sheets and shit, and they flip off the lights while he's cleaning himself up in the bathroom. We lay there, staring up, while we wait for Alex to return. When he does return, he flips on the lights. Then he turns them off again once he's in bed. This time, we notice there's a weird glow on the ceiling, the dude on Alex's top bunk, let's call him Brad, starts freaking out and jumps off his bed. Naturally, we all jump off our beds too, to see what he's tripping about. On the ceiling, in glow-in-the-dark letters, are the words, Die Adam, and it looks like blood splatter around it. By the way, Adam was the name of a kid who supposedly committed suicide years ago in that very same barrack block. Bear in mind... Those letters were definitely not there before he returned from his nosebleed cleanup. We freaked out and yelled for the sergeants and basically didn't sleep that night. That's just the beginning of even more weird shit. So, fast forward a couple of weeks. A bunch of us, including Alex and Brad, are chilling in a room. Enter Sergeant Williams, looking very pissed off. He mentions that a friend of his recently got shot in a gang-related something or other. His reaction is to sit down, cross-legged, and start chanting in some language. One kid, I'll name him Simon, says, 
You're going to burn yourself out, man. Sergeant Williams says, No, I have more than you think. Now, the rest of us don't have any idea what the f*** is happening. So we just kind of start laughing when he does this weird snapping then patting the ground thing. Angry, he tells us that he's chanting in Gaelic and that he can manipulate energy with his mind. We're all like 14 to 17 year olds, so again we burst out laughing. He beckons me over and tells me to put out my hand. I oblige and he hovers his hand over mine. So far, I'm like, what the f*** is he doing? Suddenly, my hand starts turning really hot and I retract it quickly. I'm scared, so I kind of just leave the room. A few minutes later, Sergeant Williams tracks each one of us that were in that room down and tells us that if we tell anyone, that he will murder us. I nod and keep silent. I'm easily bullied. But Alex and one of his friends go straight to the sergeant's. I wasn't there, but from what Alex told me, I gathered that Alex and his friend were put into lockdown while the police came and took a struggling Sergeant Williams away. We heard rumors that he was temporarily moved to an asylum. One more weird thing that happened. We were about four weeks into the camp. It was a Saturday, and it was windy as hell. They wouldn't let us out of the barracks because apparently there was a tornado warning and they were on standby to move us all to the basement or something. As we all sat in the halls, polishing our boots and singing Amazing Grace, all the power goes out. It was like a movie because there was lightning and stuff and people were hysterical. Suddenly, some dipshit at the window starts freaking out and a bunch of us run to the window to see what's outside. Now, I didn't get to see it, but apparently people could see a Sergeant Williams-like figure standing in the middle of the field behind our barracks staring at us. What in the total Seriously, some freaky horror story shit. It was awesome and horrifying at the same time. It was the craziest six weeks I've ever experienced. I grew up on the top of a mountain that was mostly abandoned since the 60s, which an old ski kill burnt down. There were two other full-time residents up at the top where we lived. The rest of the houses stood empty the majority of the time, or were abandoned. The history of this mountain dates far back, hundreds of years ago, before the colonization of Canada. There were two native communities at war. One lived on top of this mountain, one lived in the valley below. At the base of the mountain, the two communities were supposed to meet for battle. During the journey down, the valley tribe snuck up behind the mountain tribe and slaughtered all of their women and children. When the mountain tribe returned home, they were apparently slaughtered too. On the entire mountain side, these binding wild strawberries grow and it's said they grow from the spilt blood of the mountain tribe. Many people have died on this mountain. When I was growing up, there were hundreds of old crosses littering the twists and turns of the mountain. My father later became one of those crosses. In a small meadow surrounded by trees set a small cottage. No driveways and only an overgrown pathway to lead you to it. 
If you looked inside, their breakfast sat still prepared, oatmeal and eggs, untouched for years. The man that lived there was supposedly a fugitive who disappeared further into the mountains when the police came up and found him one day. We had these weird neighbors who would come two weekends a month from the city with their daughter, who was my age. They would bring friends over, get high, drunk, and naked, and have orgies in their yard or the forest. There was this eerie feeling you had while on this mountain, which was aptly named Forbidden. I stood looking out my bedroom window at night. I swear I could see things moving in the forest below. We had the highest concentration of mountain lions in the world, and I was often stalked home. One night, my mother woke to the sound of the sliding door opening and closing. She walked downstairs, and my sister was standing there sleepwalking, whispering over and over, Here, kitty, kitty. My sister had never been a sleepwalker until this incident. My mother grabbed her, closed and locked the sliding door, then flicked on the lights, and right there on the deck, pacing back and forth, was a cougar. My father also became a violent sleepwalker while living up there. He would have screaming matches with the wall, sometimes ended up throwing items around. This wasn't something he did until the last few years of his life. My father was a skilled driver and had driven up this mountain and many narrower, steeper logging roads around the area, many times. A few months before the accident, I started having waking nightmares of my father's death. Something was telling me he was going to die. I remember waking up frequently and looking out the window into the forest during this period and feeling like something was communicating with me, telling me that he would die. He kissed me goodnight one night and went out the door to go to town with his friends. They left in separate vehicles. Him first, from the accounts of what happened, it was a freak accident. They were driving below speed limit down a straight stretch nearing a cliff or corner when my dad's truck suddenly lost traction and started skidding sideways towards the cliff. My dad opened the truck door and jumped out. The truck suddenly veered the other way and flipped onto him while he was laying on the ground. Something that physically shouldn't have been possible. It crushed almost every bone in his body. He survived for eight days in hospital after being airlifted. The day he died, I knew again. I knew he was dead, and it was like the feeling that something was communicating this to me. I didn't need to be told. I was so sure of this feeling that I collapsed onto the ground the second I got this feeling and started screaming, he's dead, isn't he? He's dead, isn't he? Over and over and over again. I was only eight years old. I had never experienced death before. There's a lot more that went on up there to a lot of different people over the years. It's known locally as a haunted and weird place. Nothing good ever happens up there. People do weird and crazy out-of-character things, commit heinous crimes, die, or just lose their minds. We moved when I was nine. I never felt that feeling again anywhere else. That feeling of something insidious all around you. I've only been up there a handful of times since then, and every time, that feeling always returns.
This is not my story. It's my best friend's, and with her permission, we both would love to share this with you. She sent this to me immediately after it happened. Here you go. Me and Allie, my best friend since birth, decided to go to Blackwell. If you don't know, it's a very small area, settled up against and within a forest, just a few miles past Cadet, Missouri. It is considered very haunted, which really means there is a large amount of people who have had some insane shit happen to them there and can't explain it. So much has happened there, and if you are someone who feeds off or experiences paranormal activity stronger or differently than others, you almost feel sick just entering the area. The feeling of dread is so overwhelming and your throat gets tight. We wanted to go to the old Blackwell Upper Bridge, which was shut down in the 80s after a terrible car accident took place there. The bridge has in ways still been open to the public, but there are still random awful accidents taking place. At about 12 to 1-ish a.m., and keep in mind that it was very dark and late, we turned on our GPS and tried to find this bridge, as we don't necessarily live close. We are just aware of this area. So our phones were charged and our GPS worked 100% perfectly fine until we got about a mile out and suddenly everything stopped working. Our phones were acting weird and the GPS app shut itself off and would not let us open it. When it finally allowed us to click on the app, we typed in the address to the bridge and it said, no coordinates found. We were both just like, what? Each time we both tried to put in the address, nothing came up. But leading up to this point, there wasn't a single problem. Now, mind you, our service was fine. It's not like we couldn't use the app at all. At this point, we are terrified, because it's just two of us in the middle of nowhere, and there isn't a single house or even building in sight. We stopped at some stop sign to redirect our apps and try to fix the issue. And a little bit behind some trees due to the road being curvy, we saw some lights, so we turned to head down the road in hopes for a gas station, house, a church, just absolutely anything. And I cannot make this up. As we turn down the road, we see the source of the lights, and there is a motorcycle with all of its lights turned on, just sitting in the middle of the road. There's nobody around. Us being two women, obviously the first thing that pops into our head is, this must be sex trafficking. So we are panicking, thinking it's a trap. We pull up a tiny bit closer because we were curious. We see one single shoe and an all-white helmet just sitting on the ground by the bike. At this point, we call the cops. We tell them we are in Blackwell, but have no idea where exactly we are and that we are positive that we just found a wreck and that there is no person in sight. We just explain to them what we can see. During all of this, we are trying to decide if we should get out of the car or not because we are still scared, but not too scared knowing the cops are on their way. But you guys, I looked outside of Allie's window and there is a man covered in blood. He is missing a shoe and his clothes are ripped. I verbally screamed as he scared me that bad. My hands felt numb. 
He was standing there looking inside of our vehicle. Allie cracked the window a very teeny bit, just enough to ask him if he was okay, and he didn't mutter a single word. Not a single sound came from his lips. At this point, we are very terrified. She has her concealed to carry, so she grabs her gun as ready as possible to protect us if this man does anything too crazy. But in the back of my mind, I'm trying to convince myself maybe he is just stunned or freaked out because he has just been in an awful wreck. But the bike being in the middle of the road with the lights on and him covered in blood. Come on now. Now, if you haven't paid any attention before in this story, this is the exact moment you need to start. An all-black Ford Ranger truck pulls up behind our vehicle, and these two middle-aged men get out, trying to see if everything is okay. He grabs the guy's shoe and tries to talk to him and figure out what had happened. Just a minute later, the paramedics and the state trooper pull up behind us. I stayed in the driver's seat. Allie gets out to talk to the guys from the Ford Ranger. Remember this truck because it comes back later on. She tells this guy we are trying to find the Blackwell Bridge when we came across this wreck, and the guy proceeds to say, I have lived in Blackwell my entire life. I grew up here and have no idea what bridge you're talking about. This was suspicious to me because most people know of the Blackwell area, and I know a lot of people who have been to this bridge, including my own parents. I talked to the state trooper. I told him that the guy was really weird when we were trying to see if he's alright, and I just told him what we had just experienced. Allie had talked to another cop who gave her directions to go to the bridge, but he told us to not get on it because he's scared that something will happen. Yes, you heard that right. A police officer told her this. About ten minutes goes by and everyone cleared out. It was just me and Allie back on the side of the road. We traveled down until we got to the old upper Blackwell Bridge Road. We start to see the bridge in the distance, but we also see something else. The exact Black Ford Ranger with the two guys who stopped at the wreck. The ones who told us they didn't know a single thing about the bridge. We slammed it into reverse and left. I don't know if I'll ever try to find that stupid bridge again. I know this story sounds crazy, but as my friend puts it, it was straight out of a damn horror movie. The Bad Place That's what the locals in my small town call the woods that circle our little slice of paradise. There are many different rumors that the residents murmur about to each other, but I don't think anybody really knows what waits in those woods. Devil cults, child-eating witches, creatures from beyond, and even aliens are some of the theories that float about. They are all bullshit if you ask me. But what isn't bullshit is those woods have definitely earned their nickname, The Bad Place. Hikers have entered and have never come out. Kids have dared each other to enter and vanished. Dogs and cats have run off into the woods to never be seen again. If you stick to town, you're safe. The only rule is don't go too deep into the bad place or you'll just become another statistic. 
I live in a small house just on the outskirts of town. There is an entry to the forest about a hundred feet from my front doorstep. At night, I keep my door locked and a shotgun by my side, ready to fire at anything that comes out of those woods. Nothing ever has except for sounds. Horrible sounds. The sounds of children screaming and crying out for help. I think it's the trees. Once the woods have you, they become you and even communicate with you. That's just speculation, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Their cries nearly tricked me the first time I heard them. I told the local sheriff and his deputy, but it always falls on deaf ears. They're just as terrified as the rest of us. Who can blame them? Bo, my six-year-old chocolate lab, sleeps in my room every night. He whimpers when the wind blows. I'll never forget my journey into the bad place. The night Bo got out and chased after a monstrous buck into the woods. This wasn't a regular-looking buck, either. He had red beady eyes with torn-up flesh hanging from his body and crooked antlers that were broken in half and dangled loosely. I grabbed my shotgun, flashlight, and started towards the bad place. I moved as quickly as I could. It still surprises me today that I wasn't more reluctant at the time. The wind became cold as I progressed deeper into the woods. The trees grew closer together and the woods began to swallow me. A sinking feeling filled the pit of my stomach. My heart pounded in my chest like a drum. I was terrified, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't call out Bo's name. My throat tightened more and more every time I tried. I managed to cry out to the woods, and they answered me. The dense trees suddenly started to open and spread apart from one another like a crowd allowing someone to pass. The wind quickly ceased. It was quiet. The woods had become eerily still. There were no signs of bow anywhere. I looked in every direction. And then, a whimper. I followed the whimpering to a pile of tree limbs. Bow was lying near it. A strong gust of wind blew, knocking me to the ground. I gasped as I landed on my back. The wind seemed to enter me and fill me up. Bo and I ran back to our little cabin. I never spoke a word about going into the woods because I fear how people would have reacted. For the first few months, things were normal. And then it all started. The nightmares, the visions, and the transformation. My nightmares started to become extremely vivid. They varied in context, but all had a similar ending. It always ended with the woods taking me back. The visions became increasingly horrifying with each passing day. It went from hearing children crying to seeing their dead mutilated bodies wrapped in tree vines. They stalked me wherever I went. It got so bad, I had to move from my cabin to an apartment in a bigger city. I can still hear the woods calling me back. The trees whisper my name and the wind blows for me. The bad place is in complete control now. I can feel it in my heart. I know it in my mind. There's something growing inside of me. I can feel it moving in my stomach. The pain is shooting to the rest of my body. My skin has started to dry up and become a wood-like texture, flaking off in good-sized pieces. 
Maybe I should go back. Maybe I should give it what it wants. Me. Are you ready to take your medicine now, Mr. Jackson? The nurse said as she handed me a little paper cup with four little pills inside. No matter how many times I tried to tell the doctor that what I experienced was real, he always ordered the large male nurses to take me back to my room. I took the cup from the nurse's hand and swallowed them as I sat looking out of the asylum's window into the trees of the dark place. I'm from Northern California, and I have spent a lot of time backpacking and primitive camping in various parks throughout the region. I've never been a big fan of car camping, simply because people are trouble and I aim to avoid them in nature. This incident further solidified my original feelings and has prevented me from doing any camping at more populated sites since. A couple years back, two of my girlfriends and I decided on a whim to head north and camp along the Yuba River. We had a decent day swimming and sunning ourselves on the rocks before we headed back to camp to cook dinner. All in all, it was a lovely day. We were all sleeping in separate tents, and I should mention that one of my friends is a heavy, heavy sleeper, and the other had a fair amount to drink and was out cold. Around 2 a.m., I woke suddenly. I was disoriented, and it took me a moment to realize the sounds I was hearing was a woman in distress. She was desperately pleading with someone. Her cries became hysterical screams, and it quickly became evident that she was being beaten. Without thinking, I exited my tent and attempted to wake my girlfriends. I was panicked and frightened, and my instinct was to avoid making too much noise. I was unable to stir either of them. I felt like I was virtually useless and would likely get myself injured, or worse, if I were to intervene but I couldn't sit idly by while someone was being hurt. I grabbed my buck knife, and with the moon high overhead, I cautiously crept towards the commotion. As I faltered toward the clearing of their campsite, suddenly to my left, I heard loud footsteps, and a man emerged from the woods. He gestured for me to keep quiet, and his confident and frankly pissed demeanor and gait put me instantly at ease. I could hear a kerfluffle, and shortly after, the man emerged with the woman, a young boy and two chihuahuas. She was overwrought and didn't want to be near the man who had come to her aid, and insisted she only wanted to speak with me. She told me they were in between housing, and this was an isolated incident. The abuse had clearly been prolonged and frequent, considering she had old bruises and injuries all over her body. I recognize now that I could have handled what would be the remainder of the night in a smarter and safer way, but live and learn, I guess. There was no cell service, and she didn't want to leave the campground. I offered my tent to her and her son, and I slept in my truck. By the morning light, she and her son were gone. I felt completely deflated and depressed. What was supposed to be a light-hearted getaway had turned heavy and bleak. I made coffee for my campmates, and we discussed the events of the night and decided we just wanted to go home. We packed up, and I thought to brush my teeth before hitting the road. 
I'm going to town when all of a sudden, this absolute ghoul of a man begins trudging up the hill towards me. He's tall and scrawny, prematurely balding, and looks clammy as hell. He was screaming. This. That. And it is readily apparent that this is the culprit from the previous evening. With toothpaste foaming at my mouth, I shout back that he's a coward, and I guess he thinks he's a big man because he's not afraid to hit a woman. I like to think I looked rabid. Long story short, another man bursts through the trees and clotheslined the loser. So yeah, I'm not really afraid of wildlife. Just us humans. I grew up in a very rural area. As a kid, I do a lot of exploring. Once when I was about 11 and my brother was 8, we were riding our bikes down an old trail on the edge of our neighbor's property. We frequented abandoned dirt roads often, so we knew if we just kept following the trail, we'd eventually end up at the main road, about a quarter of a mile from our driveway. We came across an old red iron lean too. There were cow carcasses hanging from the top post in various states of decay. This spooked us and we got out as quickly as possible. We really didn't speak about it after that, but both still explored. I had found a house when I was about 16 or so, but never had the courage to go in. It was about two miles behind our neighbor's 22-acre property line within the forest. I didn't really worry about it because of how far and I didn't want to go that far out on someone else's land like that again. Now, here's where it gets weird. At 22, me and two other friends got drunk and decided to go exploring. I knew how to get to this house because there's a trail. It's overgrown from years of neglect, but it's still a viable trail. We get to a clearing, and there's the house. There is a rusted 50s pickup truck parked beside the home. It's white wood and still in pretty decent condition. The lawn was shorter grass, almost like it was freshly cut, and it looked like they needed to weed eat around the truck in the house. I didn't think much of this at the time. We don't plan to go in at first. We walked around the back and saw there was a whole trailer behind the house. The two were connected by a crudely made awning and porch. We could see the back door of the house and the front door of the trailer were both open. One quart glass jars were everywhere. I mean dozens. Some on the ground under the porch and a lot on the platform. There were so many. They spilled out of the trailer and house. Most were empty, but some had a clear liquid in them. We decided not to enter the trailer because that seemed to be where the majority of the jars were. We were unsure of broken glass and assumed the liquid was moonshine, as it wasn't growing algae like some of the others. We go through the back door and find the house was in disarray. Paper everywhere. Tons of water damage. The roof and floor were caving in in some places. I found a calendar from 1973 hanging on the wall. Old toys and books were just scattered everywhere. No seating or bedding furniture, but there were a couple of tables and a desk. The craziest thing I found was a box within that desk. 
It contained pencils, blank papers, a how-to-write-in-shorthand book, and some records. The records showed large sums of money being paid, not only to the local school, but also to several people. The area I grew up in is a lot of old money and generational, wealthy people, and I recognize many last names. One of the names I recognized was my 70-something-year-old landlord's. The sums of money were anywhere between fifty and $6,000. The larger amounts were paid to the school and frequently too. They'd get a check at least once every week, sometimes twice a week, never for less than $1,000. At this point, one of my friends found a plate and glass on the kitchen table. It was dirty like it had food on it at one point. There were dirty dishes in the sink too. This kind of weirded us out as we left at this point. It's been about ten years since that day. A few weeks ago, I'm shooting the shit with my dad at about two in the morning. We were talking about living there for so many years, and how we had so many memories. With it being so late, I felt a little spooky, so I told him about the house. I did not tell him about the receipts. After hearing my story, he kind of nods and says, yeah, that's Mr. Cup's house. I had never heard of this dude in the 20-something years I lived in this house. The more I got to thinking about it, the more I felt like I remembered that name on the records. I asked my dad how he knows about the house, and apparently, when we were little kids, my parents had too much to drink one night and took some of their friends out there to go ghost hunting. He saw pretty much the same thing I did. He told me how he gets to the location, and I realized the road I found those carcasses on as a kid was one of Mr. Cups's driveways. The other came out about a quarter of a mile to the opposite of my house. I then told him about the receipts and our now-deceased original landlord's name on them. He tells me he doesn't know about all the receipts, but he does tell me that way back in the 50s, Mr. Cup and our landlord's were at ends about where the property line was. Mr. Cup had proof of his side of the land. The landlord had filed a motion to stall the lawsuit, and eventually, after years of fighting, it was settled that the property Mr. Cup was living on was theirs. Some of the details in regard to why Mr. Cup didn't get his land are fuzzy to my dad. He does know that the landlords didn't tell Mr. Cup that he had to vacate because they didn't want him to appeal. So for about 10 years, they let him live there and didn't mess with him. At this point, he's in his 70s and it's in the 1970s. The landlord gave Mr. Cup's property, in addition to a lot of property behind our neighbor's acreage, to her daughter as a wedding present. They forced Mr. Cup to pay them in order to stay. The daughter used the money to fund a clubhouse in the middle of the property. They also redirected his access road, the trail, to lead to the clubhouse. This went on for some time until the couple, who were now in possession of the property, decided to divorce. The guy was the brother to my little brother's best friend's dad. His family home was right down the road from all of this. He managed to win all of the property in the divorce and the wife got the money. The first thing he did was go to Mr. Cup and sold him not only his property back, but also all the property that was originally the landlord's. 
including the property the club was on. So, Mr. Cup closed off all access to the club and the access point furthest from him. He left the one closer to his home open. Then what? I asked my dad. He shrugged. Nothing. He lived a few more years and then he died. They found him at the kitchen table a few months after he had passed. I don't know who owns this property now, nor do I know who has been maintaining it. The only other person in this area with that last name spelled it different and was not originally from the area. I know nothing else about it. I don't even know what was in those jars. I think about this sometimes, and the more I think about it, the more questions I have answers. And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these true, backwoods, creepy stories. If you are asleep, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. And if you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.